This episode of the Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by the members of the U.S. Naval Institute. Our members write, debate, and discuss key issues that ultimately strengthen the Navy, Marine Corps, and Coast Guard. Benefits include a subscription to our award-winning Proceedings Magazine, discounts to over a 1,000 titles from books published by the Naval Institute Press, and graphic novels from Dead Reckoning, a discounted subscription to Naval History Magazine, special invitations to conferences and events, and access to 146 years of archival information such as historic photos, oral histories, and so much more. For more, go to usni.org join. Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me for another special history episode of the podcast is the Naval History Editor-in-Chief, Eric Mills. Hello, Eric. Hey, Ward. Nice to see you again. Nice to see you in person. We've already chatted about this phenomenon called being in the same room at the same time. It's all very three-dimensional. It's three-dimensional. You have all three dimensions with you today. It's good. You didn't leave those behind in the COVID environment. No, I even brought the fifth Fourth you and fifth dimension with me. Yep. That's how excited I am about this. Up, up, and away, right? <laughs> fifth dimension. Um, so, Eric, what is happening in the world of Naval History Magazine? Well, we're enjoying the uh, response to the new issue that's out there now that um, we'll be talking about part of today. And um, the feedback's been very nice so far. And we're very excited about the one we're working on now for uh, September, October. We've got some great stuff in there on Guadalcanal, the naval struggle for Guadalcanal. Um, we even have some... Uh, medieval naval amphibious invasion history in there and i'm going to leave it at that because it's um kind of a different thing for us and but we run the gamut we have a really great piece in there from uh the 1980s more on that to come as well so we really range far and wide in the uh september october issue uh centered around a really solid guadalcanal package so stay tuned for that folks well, and I will draw the listener's attention to the digital-only naval history item about the E-2 Hawkeye bailout Oh yeah, that happened. That um, I remember that story. In fact, the Tomcat pilot, Coach Lossberg, he and I were RAG instructors together. Um, he was ordered to shoot the airplane down, and we're, we're trying to figure it out, but he, right. I think the airplane crashed before he could do, do that. And there was later another episode with mm-hmm. a... A flaming Hawkeye screaming across the med that had to be shot down or gunned by a hornet. But this one was before that. Right. This happened right after Desert Storm aboard Forrestal, or it was an E-2 attached to the air wing with Forrestal. That's right. So Anniversary was just last week, which is why we ran it then. Um, But yeah, Hawkeye bailout at 4,000 feet. Check it out. It's a cool article, and it's a reminder that there's a lot going on at USNI.org between physical issues of the magazines Constantly. so be sure to check out the uh the site in between your uh, your readings of the print version of the magazine all right let's get right to our guest because this is a very cool topic this is a great one i'm really excited about this one it's you'll call this one unique once you hear it um it's july as you can tell if you step outside of beach hall right now into the 93 degree maryland heat but um, July is a special time for military history buffs. Um, if your historical interests range over land as well as the sea, your thoughts always return in July to that pastoral place in Pennsylvania called Gettysburg. Whole libraries of books have been written about that clash in July of 1863 that changed the course of the Civil War. But now, 
We are proud to offer a unique new take. That's right, an article about the Battle of Gettysburg in Naval History Magazine. And as Gettysburg licensed battlefield guide Jeff Harding will tell us about here today, once you start peeling back the layers, you start to see that an incredible number of connections twine between the great Civil War battle and the U.S. Navy. They are very numerous, so let's get right to our guest, Jeff Harding. Welcome. Oh, thank you. I'm glad to be here. I appreciate the invitation. Well, we're glad to have you because this is certainly the most um, unusual podcast we've done so far for Naval History on um, here. So uh, please, I invite you to just delve right in. Maybe tell us a little bit about yourself. You have a Navy career background as well as a strong Gettysburg attachment. And those two things overlapped in this pretty amazing article you did for us. Yeah, absolutely, Eric. Thank you. Again, and I really appreciate you uh, having an interest in the article and having a chance to run this because uh, it's near and dear to my heart. Indeed, I um, worked for the Navy for 33 years as a civilian. Um, in fact, uh, some folks probably know uh, retired Captain Bill Bray out there on, uh, I guess he's a uh, deputy, isn't he, editor-in-chief over proceedings? He is. That's absolutely I had job, the yep. uh, distinct pleasure to serve under him. And um I always have the Navy in the back of my mind, even though I'm retired. And as a licensed battlefield guide at Gettysburg, of course, the big emphasis there is, you know, Army, as it should be. But um, as guides, when you have visitors, you're always trying to link something on the battlefield to something that might be of particular interest to them, other than the entire story of the battle. So if they're from a particular area, uh, they had relative serve in a certain unit that maybe they can trace the lineage back to a regiment that fought at Gettysburg, those type of things. And, and of course, for me, the more I read, the more I experienced the battlefield, and I've been guiding to Gettysburg now 21 years, uh, started to build a little list whenever something popped up that had to do with somebody that had ties to the Navy, one way, shape, form, or another. And really, the first one that uh, I started with was back in 1996, and this was um, Henry Hayes Lockwood, who was a West Point graduate, of course, and ended up at the Naval Academy as one of the co-founders. He's there uh, initially to instill uh, military discipline in uh, those uh, those folks that weren't so necessarily interested in such things at the time. He wasn't very popular uh, for his efforts in that regard, but um, when the Civil War uh, broke out, uh, Lockwood ends up being called into action back to the Army, leads some uh, Delaware troops initially, and then ultimately gets uh, promoted to Brigadier General and um, has a bloodless campaign. I like to put that over on the uh, Delmarva Peninsula, the, the two Virginia counties here. And then when Gettysburg comes about, they're looking for all the reinforcements they can find. And sure enough, he ends up at Gettysburg. And actually, uh, it's it's amazing the work they do there. And it's really not recognized by many, but they do significant work. They, they make a, a decent contribution for troops that are as green as they were for the most part. He's got a, a New York regiment, a couple Marylanders, uh, Eastern Shore Regiment, and a Potomac Home Brigade with him. And uh, they serve on both flanks. They come in on the uh, left flank of the Union Army when the Union Army's hard-pressed on the afternoon of July 2nd, and they start to uh, strip the right flank over on Culp's Hill of troops, and Lockwood's brigade is one that comes in and assists in repulsing the Confederates that afternoon. And then they return uh, ultimately to the 
right flank. It's not easy that night because the Confederates had gotten into the lower portions of the hill. Some actions there uh, that evening. But um, the next day, they see action. Uh, in the longest sustained fighting of the battle, seven hours over on Culp's Hill on the morning of July 3rd. And Lockwood's boys are there. So he's significant. And um, actually, my former command uh, adopted a position of the battlefield where some of his troops fought. And twice a year from 1996 uh, through today, even since I've been retired almost eight years now, that they're still coming up to Gettysburg and helping maintain the battlefield. So the Navy uh, has a stake there. So it was, that, that's how... I got into this thing. <laughs> a long story made longer, I guess, in this case. No, but, that's, that's, that's fantastic. So, uh, Jeff, before we get into the the connections, the three familial connections that, that we're talking about here in this article, let's pull up to 30,000 feet and just for the sake of the listener who might not be a historian or, or vaguely familiar with the Battle of Gettysburg, let's go over the high points of the three days, including how this happened in the first place. And the reason I'm suggesting this is because I've been through Gettysburg a bunch in recent years in a very non-historian way. I have a dog that does dock diving in Biglersville on Cashtown Road, right just north of the battlefield. And so we've, we've traveled through the battlefield a number of times and done the tour, and, and I'm rereading Killer Angels as a function of that. And, it, you know, it, obviously it's tried to say it's fascinating, but in the middle of the sort of national dialectic to understand this battle fully, I believe, is a, you know, sort of fundamental to being an American citizen. Um, so can you just go over, a, do a quick primer on the battle itself before we talk about these coincidences or these these relationships? Absolutely. Happy to do so. And uh as an aside, I've been involved with the doc dogs myself, so we'll have to we'll have a sidebar. But uh, that's later. up at the thirsty but, farmer, right in the the circular farmhouse, and up there, yeah, it's fantastic. Absolutely, absolutely, yes. And now my guy, well, I have one left. He's fifteen and a half, and I live next to a huge pond, and there's no interest anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but let me tell you a little bit about Gettysburg, and this is something we do as licensed battlefield guys. You know, you see people wandering around the battlefield; they've got a map, and you know, I'll, I'll usually tell most folks that I was guilty of the same thing, trying to do it by myself. And I tell folks, you know, there's 51,000 casualties here in three days of fighting. It's the largest battle to ever take place on the North American continent. Uh, if you think that you can piece that together in two hours, it's, it's like a 51,000 piece puzzle. Go for it. <laughs> Good luck. I hope you can do it. But as guides, we've studied for years on end. Uh, this is really a, even more than a passion for most of us. Um, and it's, it's an amazing uh, process to go through to to have the honor to speak for those that can no longer speak for themselves. But what we try to tell people is give them, you know, when they get them on the, in the bus or in the car, wherever you have them uh, on the battlefield, give them that background. So we're two years into the United States civil war. It's 1863. Uh, Robert E. Lee had taken over the Confederate army earlier in the war when uh, his predecessor was wounded and he's doing very well. In fact, uh, two months prior to Gettysburg, he has perhaps his greatest victory battle of chancellorsville um, but they lose stonewall jackson his right-hand man in that battle to friendly fire and ultimately jackson will die and 
Lee has to reorganize his army. Now, again, Lee's doing well, but the Union, not so much. Uh, every time Lee wins a battle, of course, the Union loses. And they've been through one commanding officer after another. And uh, there's a peace movement in the North. And it looks like to, to Robert E. Lee that if they can win a victory on northern soil, they might convince enough of the populace in the North to sue for peace. Um, they've been fighting in Virginia for two years, by and large. The, the Army's in the Eastern Theater, we'll call it, not fighting out in Vicksburg and that kind of thing. The Army's at her East. And uh, the countryside is ravaged by warfare. Lee wants to give relief to the farmers. Let's move our Army North. Let's us dictate the action for a change. Let's threaten a major northern city like Harrisburg, Philadelphia, maybe even Washington, D.C. So we'll move Army North, give relief to Virginia, threaten major city, and maybe convince that northern populace to sue for peace. But the bottom line is Lee wants to win a victory to put an end to the war. And so he launches that uh, what's known as the Gettysburg Campaign on June 3rd. Ironically, that's Jefferson Davis's birthday. So here's a chance to put an end to the war once and for all. That's it's quite a gift that Lee is offering. And so he begins to move his army north, and he steals a march on the Union Army. Uh, at that time, he had been located about halfway between Washington, D.C. and Richmond, Virginia, in the vicinity of Fredericksburg. And so he begins to move north by using the Shenandoah Valley. And he can uh, guard the mountain passes with cavalry, screen the action, and his army is gradually moving north into Maryland and ultimately Pennsylvania. Well, the Union Army will finally catch on. They move a little more quickly than Lee likely anticipated at that point. And on June 28th, uh, Lee finds out, much to his chagrin, that the Union Army is hard on his heels at this point. Uh, they're spread out on about a 30-mile front, but the left flank of that army is as close to Lee as roughly 30 miles. That's too close. And the problem for Lee, he doesn't have the cavalry he would prefer to have with him. His eyes and ears, that's your intelligence gathering source uh, back in the day, and that's Jeb Stewart. And Lee had given Stewart permission to ride around the Union Army, uh, gather intel, disrupt their rear, uh, cut off communications. But when the Union Army moved more quickly than, than even Stewart anticipated, now he can't get back to Lee. So Lee's in enemy territory without good intel, and that's a recipe for disaster. And so he's blindfolded. He doesn't have that intel he needs. Conversely, the new commander who gets the position, much chagrin, of a commanding officer of the Union Army Potomac that's still looking for a victory over Robert E. Lee. That's George Gordon Meade. He's in Frederick, Maryland when he gets this news. Now Lee's up by Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. And so what Meade is going to do is be cautious. Going to move gradually north, spread out like a fan, reaching tentacles in all directions, trying to, to locate uh, Lee's army and the cavalry are the one that are doing this. And he has an excellent cavalry commander, John Buford. And Buford ends up reporting very well on the Confederate forces. And so gradually now Meade has wonderful information on the whereabouts of the Confederate army. And they're spread out far and wide. They're as far east as York, Pennsylvania. They're as far north as the doorstep, if you will, of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And then there's a group of them around Lee in the Chambersburg Cashtown area. And so when Lee finds out, much to his chagrin, that the Union armies move more quickly than he anticipated. And by the word, he get by the way, he gets this word from a spy working for one of his subordinate officers, officer named Longstreet. And then this story is featured prominently. You mentioned Killer Angels in the novel Killer Angels. Yeah, that's and actually how true. it starts. He does that's get how that the, word. the novel starts. And so 
what Lee's going to do at this point, he can't fight. And I always tell people, spread your hand out. You know, it's not the way to fight. you got to draw that fist together. So his troops are spread out far and wide. He's got to bring them together. Orders go out to consolidate. So you have Meade fanning out. You have Lee consolidating. And there are 10 roads that lead to this crossroads town we all know today as Gettysburg. And those roads begin to draw those armies together inadvertently as much as anything with those activities that I just mentioned. And so on the morning of July 1st, Lee, still without the cavalry he trusts, will send infantry in to determine if there are any troops in Gettysburg. Now, they're coming in from Cashtown to the west, about eight miles west of Gettysburg. Lee's entire army is not together yet, but he needs to find out what's to his front. And that's when they stumble in to the Union cavalry under Buford. Now, Buford's boys fire upon the infantry of the Confederate forces. And these forces, of course, are going to do what you might expect. They fire back. Even though their orders were not to bring on a general engagement, I always tell people, boys will be boys. And so you get a battle. When you're firing at me, I'm firing back. And then the Confederates sort of force the issue, but cautiously in a way. But they're pushing back cavalry. They're having relative success, not expecting Union infantry to show up. But nearest to the battlefield that morning is a Union infantry under John Fulton Reynolds. A native Pennsylvania, born and raised in Lancaster, career army, and Reynolds aims to hold the ground. He's protecting friends and family at this point, not only serving the Union and the Army he dearly loves. And so when he deploys his troops just west of town on an area known as McPherson's Ridge, you have the state set for one of the most calamitous events in our nation's history. There'll be 163,000 troops engaged, ultimately, over three days of battle. If you had a battle that large today, you're going to need about a million and a half people on relative terms. That's how huge this battle was. One out of every 200 people alive in the country at that time is at Gettysburg. So it's hard to get your mind around the numbers. But if you make it relative like that, you begin to understand. And then what we do as guides is we'll bring in the stories the different individuals and that again takes us right back to where i started with you sharing some stories that mean something to folks share the human interest aspect so that they can then understand the the impact of this on the people that made up our country at the time so the high points the highlight of each day um i know we've got picket chart pickets charge on day three little round top on day two what was the highlight of day one yeah, so day one, uh, the important thing is when Reynolds comes into town, and Buford had recognized this when he established his position there before Reynolds and the infantry arrived, is that there's really good ground, and by that high ground, uh, south and east of town. And these are the familiar uh, geographic points most people that have ever read anything about Gettysburg would recognize, but Little Round Top, Cemetery Hill, Culp's Hill. And ultimately, when the Union Army uh, establishes a position along the ridge that connects these hills, it's known as a Union fishhook position. But on day one, you have a tremendous fight north and east of town. It's a meeting engagement. No one planned to fight at Gettysburg. The troops come together there accidentally on purpose. And you have this tremendous clash of arms. About 17,000 casualties the first day. Now, casualties killed, wounded, missing in action, captured. But either way, that's more casualties than the United States suffers at D-Day. All right. On the first day of Gettysburg alone. So the Union Army will be forced back through town. They will take up a position southeast of town on Cemetery Hill and begin to spread out. So the Confederates are victorious on day one. That's the big story. Lee has won a victory. 
And this is where you get into the misnomer with killer angels. Uh, the author takes the point of view, ultimately, uh, supposedly, what Longstreet had proposed is to disengage. And you have to think about this. Uh, the proverbial cup for Robert E. Lee is normally half full. And he's won a tremendous battle on the first day at Gettysburg. There's nothing in his mind, at least at this point, to sway him to say, I need to disengage, pull away, fight somewhere else. He's got the Union Army on their heels. And even though he didn't have the good intel, things worked out. So it was reverse Murphy's Law for Robert E. Lee on the first day of the battle. Uh, what could go right went right. And it sure enough did. So stage is set for day two. And um, day two, you're going to have the Confederates take a plan to the battlefield to hit both flanks of the Union Army simultaneously, if possible. On the left flank at Little Round Top, the Union left, and on the Union right at Culp's Hill. Uh, as things play out, these attacks are not uh, carried out at the same time simultaneously, but you have tremendous fighting on one side of the battlefield at Little Round Top, uh, the wheat field, the peach orchard, all these iconic places on the battlefield, and uh, horrific casualties. It's the most casualties of any day of the battle, day two. And as this starts to uh, fizzle out, for lack of a better term, late in the evening, uh, you have the action pick up over on Culp's Hill because the Union Army basically stripped the hill of almost all its defenders on the afternoon of July 2nd, Culp's Hill that is, to bring reinforcements to the other side of the field where they were hard pressed. Well, that left Culp's Hill very vulnerable, that right flank, that barb of the fish hook. And what happens at that point then is that the Confederates had been looking for an opportunity to attack. This is a personal invitation. And we estimate about 5,000 Confederates attacked that night. And the guy left holding the bag on the right flank, and we'll get to him in a little while, is the oldest Union commander on the battlefield, George Sears Green, 62 years old. Now, when I first started guiding 21 years ago, I called him Old Man Green. I'm not allowed to do that anymore because I've caught up with him. I was going to say, I know, come on, has, I just turned 62. <laughs> well, there you go. It's and you know that's different than, uh, than 21 years ago, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, so you're admiring that much more for what he did, but he was inspirational. And the key on Culp's Hill that night, uh, guys, is that he let his men do something different at that time in a mobile field battle. He let them build trench works, breastworks, we like to call them, protect you to your chest level when you're kneeling down. So now the Confederates attack with a greater than three to one advantage because Green only has about 1,500 men. By all rights, the Confederates should take that hill, come rolling over it, go in to maybe Cemetery Hill, which they do attack that night, and ultimately take Meade's headquarters. And that would have ended the battle. You would need Pickett's Charge on day three. But uh, Green's boys held on tooth and nail and they're fighting from those breastworks and that really really was the uh, game changer that afternoon the evening and so uh they prevail and now day three they're going to fight on culp's hill that morning both sides reinforced i mentioned earlier long sustained fighting of the battle we estimate over a million bullets fired there and by the way if you go back to gettysburg anytime soon please go to culp's hill because you're going to see a remarkable change. A, a generous benefactor donated uh, enough funds to have uh, that area of the battlefield return to its eve of the battle appearance as much as humanly possible. And by that, I mean removing non-historic trees. Um, the park made a great effort a number of years to, to do such things elsewhere on the battlefield, but Culp's Hill in particular was very overgrown. And now you can see it 
more or less as a soldier saw it. So invite you to, to visit that part of the field. But again, they fight seven hours there and the union prevails. So now Lee has a decision to make. This is day three now. You know, he'd stayed on day two. He'd, he'd come close both flanks. Again, why leave? You know, I'm almost there. And so he's ready to continue the fight. And if he takes Culp's Hill, he doesn't need Pickett's charge, but he doesn't take Culp's Hill. And so he has to go to plan B, and plan B is to come right up the gut. He reasons they're strong on both flanks. They must be weak in the middle. And so some twelve to 13,000 Confederate soldiers will be in a position that afternoon as opposed to the center of the Union line to attack across a mile of open ground and try and take the Union position, try to punch a hole in the middle of the Union line. And that sets the stage for what we do know as Pickett's charge. And um, one little side note there, I've been involved in, a, in quite a bit of research lately with a, with a, a very uh, well-known meteorologist uh, up at Penn State. Uh, Dr. John Meese, and um, this has to do with the weather during the battle. For years, we've known that the hottest day of the battle was day three. We know that at two o'clock in the afternoon, it was 87 degrees in the shade. And we know this because there's a professor at what's then known as Pennsylvania College. Today, we know it as Gettysburg College. That is a weather observer, of all things, for the Smithsonian. They have the Smithsonian Meteorological Project, and they have weather observers all over the place. And this gentleman in Gettysburg, Professor Jacobs, had been doing this for years for the state of Pennsylvania. And now he's doing it for the Smithsonian. And a lot of folks didn't know this. They knew Jacobs was interested in weather, but they hadn't a clue. Did some research on this a few years ago and so revealed this. And, and uh, most of the accounts of what he observed um, were conveyed to us by his son in an article in 1885. And not many people had ever seen his original documents. We dug those out. There wasn't anything there from Jacobs to tell us what we really wanted to know. And you guys were alluding to this. But it really felt like, I think uh, Eric said, the Maryland weather, right? And we're talking humidity. We didn't know what the humidity was. We didn't know what the dew point was. And most importantly, and they weren't measuring things as such back then, but we do today, heat index. What did it really feel like? So we actually found corroborating data from nearby weather observers that give us the information we need. Those weather observers observe something called the wet bulb temperature. And using certain calculations, you can take that information, you can get humidity, dew point, and ultimately heat index. So I'm here to tell you today, for your listeners who might not have heard this elsewhere, and it was actually on the Weather Channel <laughs> on July 1st, and then Pennsylvania Cable Network, Dr. Neese was on both programs revealing our findings, uh, is that we know that give or take a degree, the heat index during Pickett's charge was every bit of 98 degrees and possibly as high as 105. Whoa. So that's what these soldiers are having to deal with. And they're, wear they're wearing wool uniforms. Wow. Wool uniforms, cotton long underwear. They're laying out open fields for some three to four hours. Uh, they're laying on the ground, and it's hotter on the ground than it is standing up. Uh, these guys had marched, the Pickett's division marched 30 miles the day prior. So they're feeling every bit of it, trust me. And uh, you know, there's even more to it. We're going to bring all this out in an article we're writing uh, for a magazine you might have heard of, a very uh, prominent magazine uh, with articles about Gettysburg called Gettysburg Magazine. So we'll be revealing everything in full uh, in, in Gettysburg Magazine. But, yes, 
it was wow. it was every, every bit as hot as you thought and then some so pickett's charge took place where geographically is that the northern battlefields or where, where did that one take take no place? so you're still back there uh adjacent to that fish hook union line south and east of town okay and so if you're in gettysburg you go just a little bit south of town on what's known today as west confederate avenue that's a Park Service Road. It was originally put in by the War Department when they obtained the battlefield from a private group, portions of the battlefield. The Gettysburg Battlefield Memorial Association has it until the 1890s. And then there's a bill passed in Congress, uh, 1895, that becomes a national property, the War Department, ultimately the Park Service. But they put in roads to facilitate visitation. Go down West Confederate, about a mile and a half, you'll be right where Pickett's Charge begins in terms of one edge of it you go another mile you're at the other end so it goes across the battlefield a mile from left to right if you will but the amount of men in the confederate line now is about a mile itself so you have a, a colossal attack that's going to take place again about 12 to thirteen thousand, going across the battlefield against about 7500 union soldiers and what we would say is the center of the union line and there are 150 cannon confederate round numbers firing against 90 union cannon for about two hours but the union boys hold off their fire for a while conserve ammunition cool the guns it ends up being an unintentional ruse more than anything. The Confederates think that their artillery has done the job. They've destroyed the Union artillery, which, by the way, if they do, this this charge has a chance. But um, unfortunately for those guys, they're going to find out the hard way that their artillery fire was not as accurate as it needed to be. Much of their artillery ammunition was faulty, and so they pay the price by going forward in this assault at 3 o'clock in the afternoon on July 3rd, 1863. And the casualties are going to be as bad as anything you've ever seen. And ultimately, in an hour, the charge is over. The Union has prevailed. The new commander, George Gordon Meade, is the first one in the Union Army of the Potomac to defeat Robert E. Lee. So let's use Pickett's Charge as a segue to the article. And let's talk mm-hmm. of the three connections we talk about. Let's talk about the uh, Alonzo Cushing connection because that involves Pickett's Charge. So why don't, why don't we go ahead and dive into these naval relationships to those who fought the Battle of Gettysburg? Absolutely. Absolutely. So most students of the battle, even casual visitors, are going are gonna to be familiar with Cushing. Uh, there's a prominent wayside sign up by what's known as the angle uh, on the battlefield or the high water mark, basically where the Confederate charge on the third day, biggest charge, the, the spot at which it collides with the Union line. Um, and in the center of that maelstrom is young Alonzo Cushing. Now, Cushing is from a family that is really utterly amazing in terms of warfighters um, and as a battlefield guide, you know, learning about Alonzo Cushing, uh, in the years I was preparing to be a guide, I was just, you know, amazed at his heroism and bravery. Here's a guy in the midst of the attack who's wounded twice, uh, in the shoulder and the groin. He's in terrific pain. And all the men around him are begging him, leave the field, sir. You know, we'll put it on a, a stretcher and get you out of here. You know, and he says, no, I stay here and fight it out or I die in the attempt. 
And sure enough, that's what happened because uh, ultimately he's going to take a shot right in the mouth and it'll kill him. And it, they were about out of ammunition and he was that close to maybe surviving this thing, but he'll fall dead on the field. And uh, Cushing deserved the Medal of Honor, certainly, for his heroism at Gettysburg, uh, but he wasn't awarded that until 2014, which is quite a story in and of itself. But uh, in learning about Cushing, I began to learn more about the family. And sure enough, there's William Barker Cushing. And of course, to your audience, that's going to be a name they're probably well familiar with. Certainly uh, in, in uh, Memorial Hall or Bancroft Hall, if you go in, you've been over to see the uh, plaque where all the names of those recipients of the Medal of Honor uh, from the Academy are listed. And that painting right above is William Barker Cushing. And it's not there uh, by mistake. He's not a Medal of Honor recipient. But in the Civil War, um, there aren't a whole lot of guys that are recognized the way he is for his heroism. You know, he's probably most famous for uh, leading the uh, small attack uh, crew on and up the Roanoke River to hit a Confederate ironclad, CSS Albemarle. And Cushing is successful, but most of the men don't make it out. He does. And uh, he's going to be recognized for his heroism with the thanks of Congress. Now, in the United States Civil War, there are only 14 naval officers that, that are awarded the thanks of Congress, and every one of them is a flag officer except Cushing. And so that's fairly well significant, I think. And then, of course, he makes his name for himself at Fort Fisher as well. Um, so uh, Cushing certainly deserves all the accolades he receives. And, uh, and these guys aren't alone. They have two other brothers. And Howard Cushing is one of the greatest Indian fighters in this nation's history. And uh, he dies. Uh, he's the Custer of Arizona, if you will. Uh, and, you know, the typical blaze of glory statement, but certainly uh, is well known amongst those students of uh, those actions in our nation's history. And then there's one other brother, Milton, and he's a Navy paymaster. So uh, he's the only one that, uh, that makes it through without being killed in battle. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, the, well, I guess fortunate for her, but I, I think she would have chosen uh, otherwise. The mom outlives every one of the boys. And, you know, you can imagine the, uh, the pain and suffering she must have experienced. But certainly she would have been proud of, of her sons. And uh, they're very proud of them in uh, in. Delafield, Wisconsin, where they were born, and Fredonia, New York, where most of them were raised. So you've got the brave Cushing brothers. There's also a um, Army and Navy. There's also a fascinating father-son connection, Gettysburg to uh, the Navy. Uh, why don't you tell us about uh, going back to uh, the Union Army's right flank and the man who saved it, Brigadier General George Pop Green, as the troops called him. What's his oh, uh, Pop? They loved Pop. You know, it was like having your granddad on the battlefield. How are you not going to fight your heart out for him? Yeah. You know, you were, and it was that simple. But uh, Green's an interesting story. You know, he uh, he predates Robert E. Lee as far as graduating from West Point, and uh, serves the army well. Um, but gets out, and the man will lose a wife and three children, all of disease within a seven-month period. And he's utterly distraught, but he bears himself in the books. It's his only way to get through it. And um, he learns enough that he probably could have done anything he wanted in life. But Green is a great engineer, 
And if he never did anything at Gettysburg, they'd recognize his contributions to this country as an engineer, uh, instrumental in uh, the development of the reservoir that still sits in Central Park to this day, the first elevated railroad in New York City, things like this. But when the Civil War breaks out, here he is, 60 years old, he's married again, and he has a number of children. And uh, they're they're looking for West Pointers, and they're digging deep. And sure enough, uh, Green gets his invitation to come join the fray. And it always amazes me that he says yes when you consider everything he's been through. But thank goodness for the Union Army at Gettysburg that he did, because he was key indeed. Now, one of those children that I alluded to is George Sears Green. And George Sears, I'm sorry, Samuel Dana Green. Uh, Samuel Dana Green is one of the children I alluded to. And Samuel Dana Green is the executive officer, as fate would have it, on the USS Monitor. And, of course, most of us are familiar with that history. Um, on the first day of the battle, the commanding officer, uh, Warden, is going to be wounded uh, in the turret. And the guy that takes over is Green. Now, some weren't happy with the actions that took place uh, once Green took over. Others were fine. Uh, but the question was, what was Warden going to have to say about it? And apparently, uh, he was uncertain because it was years before he finally came out and pretty much uh, indicated that Green had done well enough. Uh, I think that Green must have suffered uh, some anguish over this for years on end. And um, years later, even after serving the Navy for 20 years, a lot of the veterans now are writing about their Civil War experiences, Army and Navy, for Century Magazine. And today, of course, you find most of these articles in uh, Battles and Leaders of the Civil War. But Samuel Dana Green, uh, apparently suffering mental anxiety for years over this, uh, at least some believe. And, you know, I'm not a doctor. I don't have the proof of this. and I've never seen any doctor make this statement. Um, but I've seen a number of historians uh, link this to his mental anguish. And certainly it was in the press and that he ultimately committed suicide very tragically. Um, but the story of George Sears Green saving little uh, saving Culp's Hill on night July 2nd and then again uh, participating significantly on July 3rd. And then uh, the tragic story of his son is certainly a, a poignant one. And, of course, with Samuel Dana Green serving on the monitor, uh, it's hard to find a stronger link to a historic event in United States naval history than that one. So that's one we wanted to feature for sure. It's incredibly iconic. Um, you've got Gettysburg on the one end, on the father's side of it, and you've got one of the most famous naval battles in history, the first clash of ironclads, on the son end of it. Um, how one exactly. family can be involved in so much major turning point history is just phenomenal. And the debate about the Monitor Virginia duel, by the way, continues to this day in the pages of Naval History Magazine. Uh, we is had, that right? Yeah, we had an article that. arguing back and forth both sides of that not too long ago. Um, well, um, you mentioned that this is just uh, a drop in the bucket of all the connections you've found over the years. But um, we have time to talk about a couple that uh, fit with the Naval Academy where we're talking to you from. Why don't you tell us about Bancroft's Gettysburg Address, for example. That's a pretty interesting little thing. Oh, yeah, no doubt about it. Um, actually, I had the distinct honor and pleasure of guiding at the Naval Academy in addition to Gettysburg, and I was working for a local company that I think is the only other one except for the Academy guides that has the privilege to come in to the yard. And uh, when I learned more and more about Bancroft, I started thinking, this name's familiar, you know, there's 
Lincoln's Gettysburg Address and there's the Bancroft copy. Is this the same guy? Sure enough, sure enough, it was. It's, it's amazing to me that the people that don't make this connection, and I, and I admittedly was one, but, uh, you know, Lincoln is going to make copies for a number of individuals, and Bancroft uh, was one. Bancroft was quite a historian. And a lot of people don't realize this. Um, and he wanted one of these. They're using a lot of, the, not a lot because there weren't that many, but the copies that Lincoln made for people to raise funds, um, funds to benefit those individuals that have suffered the ramifications of having served during the war, the families that are left and what have you. And so it's very generous of what Lincoln's doing, of course, and, and very smart on Bancroft's part. So here you have a link between the founder right of the united states naval academy uh and probably the thing that people know most about gettysburg other than the word pickett's charge you know we usually tell folks that we realize people know two things about gettysburg pickett charge here and lincoln spoke here so now we've got uh, the connection we talked about with pickett uh pickett's charge with cushing and here you go with lincoln's immortal gettysburg address the connection to George Bancroft. I don't think it gets any better than that. Um, there are some, uh, you know, anecdotal ones. The, if you've never been out to see the Peace Light at Gettysburg, the Eternal Light Peace Memorial is the formal name for it. This is dedicated in 1938 to signify everlasting peace between the North and South. For instance, the base is main granite, the shaft is Alabama limestone. But, but the key is at the top is a flame that burns 24 hours a day, signifying this everlasting peace. And uh, it was designed by the famous architect, Paul Philip Cray. And of course, that's who <laughs> designs architecturally the extension to the Naval Academy Chapel. So here you have that connection. So you had an architectural connection. And then uh, there are a couple monuments in the yard um, that were done by the individual that did, of all things, the Maryland Monument at Gettysburg. And that monument comes late. That's not till 1994. Most of the monuments at Gettysburg were put there years and years ago. Almost all of the monuments at Gettysburg put there by Union veterans to recognize where Union veterans fought. Some of the Confederate monuments come uh, as early as 1917, but the Maryland Monument, which recognizes Union and Confederate, because we have Union and Confederate fight against one another on Culp's Hill at Gettysburg, is done by Larry Ludke, Lawrence M. Ludke. And he does two prominent monuments in the yard that, that a lot of folks, unfortunately, don't get to see because they're they're tucked in there amongst the buildings with Vice Admiral William P. Lawrence and Vice Admiral James P. Stockdale. Both those monuments were done by Ludke. So uh, as a guy, these are the little things that you, you love to dig out. Uh, and on a grander scale, you know, the Navy has the USS Gettysburg, uh, the Eisenhower, and the Lincoln. And um, fortunately for for all of us at Gettysburg, the crews of all these vessels at one time or another have been up to help maintain the battlefield to volunteer. And one of the greatest moments of my entire 21 years of guiding came in 2018 when I got a call from my supervisor to tell me that the leadership contingent from the USS Gettysburg, the ship was being updated, uh, was still in commission, but I guess... Uh, out of service, so to speak, or modernizing, what have you. So uh, commanding officer was uh, brilliant in deciding that let's speak 
the crew in the history of this ship. And uh, he brought the leadership group up, and I had the, the real honor of taking them around the battlefield. So you have that link still today between the battle and today's, uh, today's Navy. A remarkable number of atavistic ties to, between the Navy and the greatest land battle in history. Jeff Harding, thank you so much. I believe there are like f- some 50 of these you've unearthed, and we just barely scratched the surface in the current issue of Naval History Magazine. I recommend everybody read this. It's amazing. It's called Anchors Away at Gettysburg. Jeff, thank you so much. It's been fascinating. Absolutely. My pleasure, gentlemen. Thank you for the honor of having my work appear when I consider being one of the greatest uh, journals out there. Naval history. I'm very proud and I appreciate it. Thanks, Jeff. That'll do it for this episode of the Proceedings Podcast. Look forward to talking to you again soon. Remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute.